You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Willie. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Chili Willie, a.k.a. Tortellini Soup. Today on Music Legends, we're just going to stop and smell the roses. But not just any old roses. These roses smell like gunpowder. So go ahead, take a whiff. But don't lean in too close. These roses will shoot you right in the face with ugly, raw rock and roll and remind you quite abruptly that although they may be intriguing at first, they have a real appetite for destruction. Before Axl Rose's arms were covered in tattoos, they were covered in tiny innocent orange freckles. But as the lead singer of a band like Guns N' Roses, I wonder if he was ever really innocent. Now trust me, I never thought I'd say this, but Axl Rose was a cute kid. Just an utterly misguided one. And the worst part is, it all started before he was even born. Sharon Elizabeth was 16 years old and still in high school. Sharon liked the bad boys and fell for a troubled yet charismatic local delinquent who lived on the streets after running away from his Indianapolis home. Sharon let him move in with her and her parents, although her parents didn't know. Nevertheless, the two lovebirds' relationship became more intimate, and you know what happens next. At just 16 years old, Sharon gave birth to a baby boy, William Rose Jr. After his birth, his teenage parents began fighting. His father, still the local delinquent, started to become more and more violent. His parents separated when he was only about two years old, but they should have split sooner. His father turned from a teenage delinquent to a violent criminal, and now sheer evil when he abducted his son and even allegedly molested him before disappearing from their home in Lafayette. Where do we go now? Where do we go? Shortly after having that traumatic experience and moving away, his mother got remarried to a guy who, at the time, she thought was a little less evil. In fact, he seemed like quite the opposite. Their new household was very religious, almost too religious. Quote, we'd be able to watch television one week, then my stepdad would throw them out because they were satanic. I wasn't allowed to listen to music, women were all evil, everything was evil, unquote. Axel and his family attended Pentecostal church, and he was punished if he didn't attend services at least three to eight times per week. Young Axel was at church so much that he started teaching Sunday school by the time he was 12 years old. But it turns out his stepfather should have gone to church as much as Axel did, because what his stepfather did for the next 15 years of his life was absolutely ungodly. He beat Axel and his mother, and sexually abused his sister over and over. And this time, Axel's mother just couldn't find the strength to leave her villainous husband. On the other hand, Axel just kept going to church, treating every day like an average day, sometimes even coming home to a violent crime being committed right before his very eyes. Whether he was trying to block out the hurt or had already built a brick wall of numb at this point is hard to tell. But the one place he could always escape to 
was in music. The music of God, anyway. He sang in the church choir from the age of five and performed services with his brother and sister under the name the Bailey Trio. At Jefferson High School, he was in the school chorus and took a strong interest in piano. And that is when Axel began developing, quote, different voices during his chorus practice to confuse and mess with his teacher. He was a straight up class clown around his school. He questioned and teased any authority that he came across. On the inside, he was tortured by authority. But on the outside, he turned it into something that everyone could laugh at, and soon, something that everyone could rock out to. But when Axel was at home, he couldn't escape through music or comedy. At the age of 17, while sitting in his room, he was in the process of a menial task his parents had asked him to do. Nope, not cleaning his room. This task included boxes and boxes of old insurance papers. Axel began to look closely at the papers he was handling and did a double take at the name printed in tiny black ink at the top of the sheet. He found a name that he didn't recognize. He thought his stepfather was his biological father since he was only two years old when his mother left. Axel sat straight up his eyes turned white like he had been possessed by an evil spirit. And in a sense, he was. As he sat in his room and put the pieces to this bizarre puzzle together, he felt a dark cloud that would follow him for a long time. Axel was in denial, and he became absolutely unhinged. He began to follow right down the same path of his biological father. He dropped out of high school and became the local juvenile delinquent in his town. He was arrested more than 20 times on public intoxication and battery, and served in jail terms up to three months. He was in and out of jail constantly, but when he was out, he would focus on regular teenage things, like smoking pot, of course getting into trouble, and getting his driver's license. Axel never did get his driver's license, but he ended up getting something way more valuable, a friend. He walked into the first day of his driver's ed class and stood in the doorframe as he thought strategically about where to sit. He saw only stoners and jocks, until his eyes wandered to the back of the room where he saw a long-haired punk with his feet perched up on the desk. Axel chuckled and walked toward him. Cool if I sit here, he said, pointing to the desk next to him. Ha, <laughs> at your own risk, buddy said the punk. Axel smiled and sat down. What's your name, buddy? I'm Axel. It's good to meet you, Axel. I'm Izzy. Izzy Stradlin. As they sat there together, the two immediately began to stir up trouble, and Axel was pleased to meet another bad apple. Izzy said years later, quote, So we ended up hanging out together. We'd play covers in my garage all day. There were no clubs to play at, so we never did make it out of my garage. Axel was really shy about singing back then, but I always knew he was a singer, unquote. By senior year of high school, Izzy was set on a career in music, but Axel was set on a career in crime. Izzy said years later, quote, 
When I was in school, I was practicing. I was trying real hard to put a solid band together, but it just wasn't working out." Unquote. Axel was their singer, and the best Izzy and the rest of his band had ever seen, although he would disappear for weeks while in jail or on a bender. Axel was unreliable, unpredictable, and going down a soul-sucking path. So Izzy tried to forget about his hopeless but talented new friend. And in 1980, he loaded his drum kit and, quote, this little bitty PA system some nutbag had stolen from a church and left in my garage. And he loaded it all into his Chevy Impala and headed for the Golden State, the place where dreams come true, Hollywood, California. Two years later, back in Lafayette, Axel woke up dazed and confused in a dumpster after a long night of drugs. His parents kicked him out after his 12th arrest. Now the police knew that arresting him wasn't going to change his ways. So they threatened to charge him as a habitual offender, which means higher fines, longer prison sentences, and a loss of various rights. Barefoot and ragged clothing, dark rings below his eyes from sheer exhaustion. He could have almost passed for an overgrown raccoon. Axel climbed out of the dumpster and carefully walked past a piece of broken glass, making sure he didn't step on it. Instead, he saw himself in the reflection. He saw himself and hated what he saw. So he used what little money he had and bought himself a bus ticket and a nicer outfit. He knew he could sing, so he headed to the one place he knew would accept his wounded soul, Hollywood. At 20 years old, Axel's mind was blown. He might as well have been stepping out of a safari bus because he had entered a jungle. Hollywood was everything he'd expected and more. He immediately gravitated to the clubs on the Sunset Strip and the different kinds of rock that were emerging in that area at the time. People would hang out at these clubs regardless of who was playing. There were all kinds of groups of people and Axel saw it as an opportunity. He easily found a couple musicians and started his own band, Hollywood Rose. He had a 16-year-old street performer as his guitar player. His creative mind wrapped around music once again, and he continued to look for more quality band members. He remembered his old friend Izzy Stradlin, who had moved to LA just a year before him. But there was only one problem. He didn't have his phone number, and emails were just a twinkle in Steve Jobs' eye back in 1982. Axel had no idea where his old friend was, but on a hot summer night on Santa Monica Boulevard, there was a scent of cigarettes shifting through the air. There was a line of people out the door to the Troubadour nightclub. They were all having different conversations that became a constant hum of noise. On the inside of the club, Izzy Stradlin and his new band were two songs in, and the only constant hum was of the fuzzy guitar tones belting through the loudspeakers. Sweat drenched, but still fired up. They were playing their hearts out, but the crowd was rowdy. They were throwing beer bottles and jumping on stage. It even got to the point where they started beating the singer. They knocked over the guitar player's amp, and he dove to catch it, but broke his wrist in the process.
Izzy said years later, quote, I just grabbed a cymbal stand and stood on the side trying to get them off, yelling, get the f away from me, man. And that was my introduction to the rock scene in LA. I was like, wow, this is exciting, unquote. Meanwhile, in the line outside of the club, Axl Rose was standing patiently, completely unaware of the madness inside, but about to leave and go somewhere less busy. Thankfully, fate had a different plan. Izzy and his band stormed out of the front door after their set got cut short by security. The two childhood friends turned hard rockers immediately recognized each other, and the bromance begun once again. Izzy let Axel move in with him and joined his band Hollywood Rose. The two were having a great time playing shows together, and at most of them, not a single beer bottle was thrown. In January 1984, the band recorded a five-song demo, which is now known today as the Roots of Guns N' Roses. Although back then, they were struggling to make an impact on the Hollywood music scene. And the further they went down the music-making rabbit hole, the more broke they became. But work just wasn't in their vocabulary. So if Axel and Izzy held down any jobs, they were going to do it their way. So they signed up for a scientific study at UCLA to smoke cigarettes and earned a reported wage of $8 per hour, which is the equivalent of $20 in 2018. But when the study was over, it left the Hollywood Rose to either bloom or die. And sadly, it died. It turned out to be pretty hard to grow a rose from the concrete jungle of Hollywood. But all they needed was a couple guns. Literally. After almost breaking up Hollywood Rose, they had met a guitarist from LA Guns. His name, of course, was Tracy Guns, who had brought along a bassist and a great drummer by the name of Steven Adler. One day they were jamming, and he banged on his drums so intensely that his drug-induced hits sounded and felt like Satan knocking and banging on heaven's door. Now Axel had an epiphany to bring their two forces together. Just when they thought Hollywood Rose was dead, they got their guns and shot it down. But something else was born. They combined their names, making Guns and Roses. Now although their new guitarist was so badass that people all over town knew him as only the gun, the rest of the band began to wonder if he was the right gun for the Roses. Despite his name meaning something so sinister, the rest of the band thought his guitar playing was eh, but that's okay because LA Guns brought along one more member who also had quite a sinister and disturbing name. He was known as only Slash. He was an ominous character at first, someone whose eyes you would never see as they were masked by a pair of aviator sunglasses. Even when he took them off, his long black curly hair would cover his eyes. He always had a cigarette dangling out of his mouth that made the smoke ooze through his nose ring hoop. All in all, he looked like the kind of guy who had as rough of childhood as Axl Rose. But that wasn't the case at all. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Slash was born in London. His mother was an African-American costume designer who worked closely with music legend David Bowie. His father, Anthony Hudson, is an English artist who created album covers for other music legends, such as Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. Slash later remarked about his mixed background, quote, As a musician, I've always been amused that I'm both British and black. 
particularly because so many American musicians seem to aspire to be British, while so many British musicians, in the 60s in particular, went to such great pains to be black." Unquote. But Slash never cared that he was either black or British. He had been surrounded by so many music legends growing up, but he didn't care to be a music legend either. What he wanted to be was a guitar legend. He moved to his grandparents in LA when he was five years old. He attended Beverly Hills High School where his classmates included Lenny Kravitz and Zorro. No, not that Zorro. I'm talking about the legendary drummer Zorro. Anyway, Slash wasn't in school for very long. He skipped every day to either go to BMX competitions or draw pictures for children's books. And he was pretty good, too. At least Joni Mitchell thought so. Like, the, the only real sort of natural talent that I had yeah. was drawing. Uh -huh. but I and didn't, the old man did that, so the pencils were around. Yeah, so I was always yeah. drawing, and, and uh, I actually did a kid's book with Joni Mitchell that never got released. Which was when really you were cool. a kid? Yeah, so I did the drawings, and she did the poems. Do you still have a copy of it? Uh, my dad does. Oh. I don't, I don't. Oh, I think everybody wants to see that. Yeah. But Slash put the bike and the pencil aside to devote himself to playing guitar. After hearing his music teacher play Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, he thought, that seems easy enough, but it wasn't, and he loved the challenge. And what a challenge it was. At the time, all he had to practice on was a one-string flamenco guitar, and he was practicing on that up to 12 hours a day until he was satisfied. And he never really was. After high school, he had already met and befriended countless music legends, and had been a part of countless bands. But when his childhood friend Steven Adler, who had by then learned to play drums, placed an advertisement in the newspaper looking for bandmates, Slash knew that that was the route to go. But they already had a lead guitarist. His name was Tracy Guns. So that left Slash to play rhythm guitar. Now they were just missing a singer. They auditioned a number of vocalists, including Black Flag vocalist Ron Reyes. Then they finally came upon their rose, Axel Rose, along with the Hollywood Roses. But now, there was too many in the band. But the choice was obvious who was getting voted off the island. Tracy Guns was out. And they did alright without him. As it turned out, they didn't really need him anyway. All Guns and Roses needed was, well, Tracy Guns' name. And just a little bit of patience to find the right people. When the band finally came together, Slash and Izzy Stradlin ferociously spit out dueling guitar riffs worthy of Aerosmith or the Rolling Stones. Axl Rose screeched out his tales of drugs, sex, and apathy in the big city. Meanwhile, bassist Duff McKagan and drummer Steven Adler were a limber rhythm section who kept the music loose yet powerful. Guns N' Roses was born. Their lineup debuted at the Troubadour and proceeded to play the LA club circuit. Now, if you don't live under a rock, no disrespect if you do, if you do, that'd be pretty cool. Anyway, if you don't, you've probably heard the phrase, 
work hard, play hard, right? Well, the thing about Guns N' Roses is that they were making money off their packed shows, so they didn't have to work. They just played, and they played harder. Quote, it was just hardcore good times, going out there and doing whatever we wanted, Slash said years later. But unlike their poofy-haired peers on the Sunset Strip, Guns N' Roses managed to transform their wildest times into lasting music. But soon, they would become way too wild, and frankly, out of control. By 1987, they had a few great songs on their hands, so they took to the studio to record their debut album, Appetite for Destruction. It was only a week into the recording process. Axl Rose was lying nude inside a Manhattan recording studio's darkened vocal booth. He was working out some rather unorthodox last-minute overdubs. All was quiet except a distant hiss. The tape was rolling, and Axl knew something wasn't right. Beneath him was a cute 19-year-old stripper named Adriana Smith, who just happened to be the drummer's girlfriend. Come on, Adriana, make it real, barked Axel as he paused right in the middle of doing the dirty. Stop faking! Just in the other room, the engineer was cringing as he realized now was the time to make his move and venture into the room and adjust the top-of-the-line microphone, capturing sounds that no one should hear. Axel heard swift knocks like a doctor about to check on his patient. The door swung open. Oh my God. What the hell? Jesus, it's like a Ron Jeremy set in here, said the young engineer as he tightened the mic. The woman under Axel wanted to get back at the drummer Steven Adler for cheating on her, and she'd always liked Axel better anyway. She was just one of the many strippers who hung around Guns N' Roses on a regular basis. She eventually gave Axel what he wanted, her orgasmic moans. And they ended up front and center on Appetite for Destruction's final track, Rocket Queen. Now, if you think that was raunchy, the album cover art was straight up insane. It depicted a robot rapist and his victim passed out by his side. Above this scene was another bigger robot with swords for teeth, looking bloodthirsty and ready to attack. Now, if you want to see it for yourself, I left a link in the description. At first, the album wasn't selling. Well, at least not as much as they thought it would. It sold around 300,000 copies in the first year of its release, which wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. So the band's record label and manager made an executive decision to change the cover art to something a little less explicit. So they went with one of Axel's tattoos. It was a cross with every member of the band as a skull, all wearing their signature hats. After they changed the look of the album, the radio started playing Sweet Child of Mine non-stop. The album rose to the number one position on the Billboard 200. Flash forward to 2018, and Appetite for Destruction has sold over 30 million copies worldwide. 18 million of which sold in the United States, making it the best-selling debut album of all time in the US. Although that success didn't happen overnight, to them, it sure felt like it. And so the party went on. Well, it was more of a dark cartoon of indiscriminate sex, property damage, booze, and hard drugs rather than a party. Regardless, it went on. 
As the band began living this rock star lifestyle and spending more quality time with each other, they developed enough material for two albums, so they began recording. And I don't know what was more astonishing, the final product of their album or the house they stayed in while recording it. The band had rented a mansion, and the landlord decided to pop by one morning unannounced to check in on the place. The landlord walked up the front steps. She felt the cool drizzle of November rain. She heard the birds chirping, but nothing else. It was quiet. Too quiet. At least for the amount of cars that were parked in the driveway. She knew something was wrong on her property, but she just didn't know what until that moment. She saw something odd sitting peacefully in the front yard. The band had torn the toilets from the floor and thrown them out the window. <gasps> the landlord gasped and ran inside where it only got worse. She recalled years later, quote, People were defecating in the sinks. The holes in the floor where the toilets had got ripped out were filled with urine. There were half-eaten whoppers with mold on the wrappers. They would just get in these drug rages and just go berserk." Unquote. But this was worse than anything she'd ever seen before. The damage totaled $22,000. Her and the band's manager immediately submitted it to the record company, and then they dropped Guns N' Roses as clients. At first, they had a very real appetite for destruction, but now it was becoming an appetite for self-destruction, as the damage only got worse. Still without an album to promote, the band embarked on the two-and-a-half-year Use Your Illusion tour, which ultimately became known for its late starts, onstage rantings, and even riots. In July 1991, 90 minutes into a concert at the Riverport Amphitheater near St. Louis, Axel screamed for security to confiscate a fan's video camera. But they couldn't. And eventually, Axel himself dove into the crowd to seize the fan. After being pulled back on stage, he announced, Well, thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. He violently kicked the mic stand down and walked away. Over 2,500 fans were understandably a little upset. Okay, that might be an understatement, considering they started a riot resulting in an estimated $200,000 in damages. When the band got back from that crazy tour, their second two albums were finally released, which proved insanely difficult due to crazy parties and riots. And even a reported $60,000 grand piano that was smashed by Axel. You're talking to yourself and nobody's home. The two albums debuted at number one and number two respectively on the Billboard charts. That's a feat not achieved by any other group. But by the album's release, Axel's relationship with his bandmates had become increasingly strained. His childhood friend Izzy Stradlin abruptly left the group. Of all his reasons for leaving, Izzy said simply, quote, I didn't like the complications that became such a part of daily life in Guns N' Roses, unquote. 
starting riots, and Axel's chronic lateness might as well be prime examples of that. Nonetheless, the show must go on, so Izzy was replaced by Gilby Clarkoff of Kills for Thrills. But the real chemistry of the band was never the same after Izzy went his own way. At some point during that time, Axel demanded and received sole ownership of the Guns N' Roses name from Slash and Duff McKagan. He allegedly gave the remaining band members an ultimatum. The ultimatum was to sign the name over to him or he wouldn't perform. However, in 2008, Axel made a public statement saying that those reports were false. But as they say, the proof is in the pudding. And Steven Adler left, reportedly for the same reason. Axel wanted the band members to sign contracts that made them hired hands. You know, a, a pretty long amount of time that I haven't really been focused on. was the last really time you actually spoke you to? That was 1996. Do you remember the last words? Um, Are they repeatable? No, no, it wasn't like that. I think uh, the last word, you know, the, basically it was just that I, you know, I'm done. I think that was... That Who was, said that? I did. I'm done. Yeah, and, and it really, it wasn't even me necessarily leaving the band. Um, it was not continuing on with the new band that Axel put together that he was now at the helm of, which was the new Guns N' Roses. And I was, you know, given a contract to basically join his new band. And, you know, and I, it, it, it took about 24 hours before I decided, you know, I, I think this is the end of the line. Whether or not he legally took over the band, or was even capable of taking it over, that's what happened. Slash and Duff McKagan finally left as well, leaving Axl Rose to find some new guns. But this time, fate wasn't on his side. To Axl, it felt like no one was. So he stopped making music completely to focus on his mental health. He became intrigued with homeopathic medicine and going down a rabbit hole where he ultimately found the rabbit he had always been searching for. He began past life regression therapy, which is a technique that uses hypnosis to recover what practitioners believe are memories from our past lives or incarnations. Axel was laying on a velvet sofa, watching the eraser of a mechanical pencil go back and forth between his line of sight. He began to grow drowsy, weak, and helpless, when he realized he's always felt that way. That's when he uncovered memories of being sexually abused by his biological father at the age of two. These memories must have subconsciously stunned his emotional growth. So when they talk about Axel Rose being a screaming two-year-old, in a sense, they're kind of right. Meanwhile, Slash formed a series of bands, including Slash's Snake Pit and a blues cover band called Slash's Blues Ball. In 2003, he started Velvet Revolver, which was largely praised and heralded as a successful comeback. Out of all the members of the band, Slash arguably had the most successful solo career. But don't get me wrong, Slash had his own problems to deal with. At the age of 35, Slash was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy caused by years of drug and alcohol use. He was given just weeks to live, but he had a defibrillator implanted, and beating the odds, he went on to survive. So thankfully, the top hat wearing guitarist has been sober ever since. On the other hand, some don't make it out on the other side of drug addiction, and the rock star lifestyle in general, but Guns N' Roses did, and it was pretty awesome. Slash got his picture on the front cover of a revolutionary video game called Guitar Hero, 
and Axel was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and even named one of the greatest singers of all time. At a time when pop was defined by dance music and pop metal, Guns N' Roses brought something raw, mean, and untamed back to the charts. There was something refreshing about the way they could provoke every feeling from devotion to hatred. Frankly, during Guns N' Roses' short time as a well-oiled music-making machine, they were one of the most real and authentic bands out there. And the good news is, there's a lot more real bands out there today, and they're not starting as many riots as Guns N' Roses was. But when it comes down to it, it's always the bands that have seen the most action that become the most legendary. Thank you all so much for listening to Music Legends. If you haven't already, share it with some friends. And if you liked what you just heard, write me a good review on iTunes or wherever you listen. I know it seems like a simple little thing, but it really does mean the world to me. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Chili Willie. I also want to give a quick but big shout out to my friend and teacher Chase Thompson, who helps a bunch as well. He's a complete badass when it comes to podcasting and pretty much anything else audio related. Thanks for everything. It's only the beginning. And for everyone else, what music legend do you want me to do next? Hit me on the email at musiclegendspodcast at gmail.com or the snail mail or a paper scroll sealed by wax. Whichever way you prefer to transfer words. This has been Music Legends with Chilly.